You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I'm recording this in hell right now, a.k.a. the insanely hot Los Angeles, because for some reason, global warming I'm assuming, it's 100 degrees in early April. No movies this week, because honestly, it was too damn hot to go do anything. And frankly, probably a blessing in disguise, because we've got a lot of ground to cover today anyway. So let's just jump in. Now that you've got a working knowledge of Francis Ford Coppola, it's time to go on a deep dive into three of his biggest films. This week, we're covering the making of what is arguably the second greatest movie ever made, no pressure, The Godfather, a movie that almost didn't exist thanks to a flurry of production woes, creative differences, and, oh, a very real series of threats from very real mafiosos. With that, Let's take our places. It's showtime. It all started with a book a book called The Godfather that released in March 1969. It was nearly 450 pages long and written by Mario Puzzo about the fictional Corleone crime family, one of the five families of the New York Mafia. While the book was fictional, it did allude to many of the real members of the New York Mafia and the real five families. Puzzo, though Italian, had no knowledge of the mob at the time, so in order to do research, he spent time in Las Vegas where he met Ed Walters, a pit boss at the Sands, who would give him all the insight he needed for his manuscript. The book was a surprise smash hit, mostly due to the public's fascination with the mafia at the time. This was in no small part due to mafia bosses like Carlo Gambino making headlines at the time after a series of FBI investigations. The Godfather would spend 67 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and sold 9 million copies in just two years. It was the highest selling book in years. Which was great news for Paramount Pictures because they had their sights set on adapting it since 1967. With just 60 pages of the feature novel finished, the studio had secured the option to the book for a mere $12,500, with an additional eighty dollars to be paid to Puzo if they actually made the film, which frankly they did not plan to do by the time the book came out because they believed the film would be too much of a financial risk. By the way, an option, if you're not familiar, is when a studio buys the rights of a project for a set amount of time to develop that project into a film. 
If the option expires before the film is made, the owner of the property keeps that initial payment, but then can take it elsewhere in the hopes of getting it made. Puzo's agent told him to turn down the offer. He would likely get something much better down the line, but Puzo was desperate for money and accepted the deal anyway. You see, according to Robert Evans, the senior vice president of Paramount at the time, he'd offered Puzo the $12,500 deal for the 60-page manuscript, then titled Mafia, after the author confided in him that he urgently needed ten grand to pay off his gambling debts, likely accrued when he was in Vegas doing research. As you may well remember, this was also a rough patch for Paramount and frankly all of Hollywood, as the aging movie studios were having trouble adapting to the new era. Once the top film studio in the, well frankly the entire world, Paramount now found itself on the lowest rung of the big studio ladder. Paramount had also recently been sold to conglomerate Gulf and Western for a mere $600,000. For the first time since its invention, people were leaving the film industry instead of entering it. Audience tastes were changing faster than the movies could adapt to. In fact, 1969 and 1970 had seen the lowest attendance to movie theaters since they had begun popping up in the 1900s. Some people believed, not dissimilar to now, that going to the movies would, in a few years, be looked upon with the same level of nostalgia as people then had for vaudeville. There was even talk of shutting down Paramount Studios altogether and just selling off the land. But Bob Evans had made a presentation to the board of Gulf and Western in New York promising a turnaround. This was on the heels of a string of financial disasters and several films that had gone vastly over budget. But they had had one little glimmer of hope with the film Love Story, which had also been based on a massive best-selling book. Paramount hoped, and Evans even mentioned it in his appeal to the board to keep the studio open, that The Godfather could do even better than Love Story once turned into a film. Gulf and Western agreed, and the studio was allowed to continue. So, they had to put their money where their mouth is, and Paramount, wanting to keep the film real, real cheap, began assembling their dream team of cheap but good talent. In 1969, Paramount officially announced their intentions to make a film out of The Godfather for the low, low price of $2.5 million to be released in December 1971. Paramount had believed that $2.5 million would be more than a reasonable budget, but as the book rose in popularity, soon-to-be-hired director Coppola bargained for and successfully obtained a bigger budget of $6 million. On March 23, 1970, Albert S. Ruddy was officially announced as the film's producer because he had just made a film for Paramount, achieving two things they weren't used to, a project that finished ahead of schedule and under budget. Ruddy, whom is the main character of the upcoming show The Offer, which is why we're doing this whole thing this month, had entered the film industry after a chance encounter with Jack Warner. He'd actually studied architecture at USC, not film or theater or anything similar, and was building houses on the East Coast when he happened to meet Warner. Once in Hollywood, Ruddy had bounced around several studios, making a living as a writer and a couple of other things, even co-creating the show Hogan's Heroes along the way. The Godfather would be his fourth film as a producer. Now, you already know who the director is, unless you really didn't pay attention last week, and also I said his name like two minutes ago. But how did Francis Ford Coppola get this job? Well... Bob Evans wanted to make sure that the film was directed by an Italian-American to make the film, quote, ethnic to the core. 
Paramount's last mafia film, The Brotherhood, which, if it matters, was directed by and starred Jewish dudes, Martin Ripp being the director and Kirk Douglas being the star, had tanked hard at the box office. In fact, many mob films coming out at this time starred Jewish people, not Italians, and nearly all of these films tanked. As someone who made a film about Italians in 2012, much less the 1970s, casting ages can't really tell the difference physically between Italians and Jewish people. It's a thing. It has not gone away, at least as of 10 years ago. But let's be honest, it's probably not changed. They've actually got a Jewish dude playing Coppola in the offer. So actually, that answers my question. So there you go. Evans actually blamed not the lack of audiences interest on mobsters as the reason these films tanked, the way the book The Godfather sold had proved that plenty of people were interested in the subject. But Evans thought that the lack of real Italians in these films, and therefore a lack of realistic Italian culture, was the reason that they weren't connecting with the Italian audiences, or any really audience at all, because they looked kind of like it was a caricature. It was a caricature of Italian culture, and people picked up on that. It's simple as can be. Francis Ford Coppola, by the way, was far from the first director they approached for this. The first was Sergio Leone, whom turned down the project to work on Once Upon a Time in America, which was a gangster film that he'd co-written that would eventually release in 84. They then approached the non-Italian Peter Bogdanovich, I guess for getting their strategy, who didn't want to do a mob movie at all. Then they went to Peter Yates, Richard Brooks, Arthur Penn, Otter Preminger, and several others. The answer was the same each time. No, 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 no. Evans' chief assistant, Peter Bart, would be the one that would suggest Francis Ford Coppola. He fit the bill. He was a director of Italian ancestry who would work for cheap since his previous film, The Rain People, had been a financial and frankly critical disaster, as had his studio, Zoetrope's most recent release, THX 1138. Coppola initially turned down the gig of The Godfather as well, as he thought the source material was sleazy and cheap, plus he wanted to make his small independent films, not these big-budget Hollywood movies. But, like Buzzo, Coppola had his own debts he needed to pay. As I mentioned last week, Zoetrope owed over 400 grand to Warner Brothers, so that wasn't great. And then, coupled with advice from his family and friends, also he had a third child on the way, for Christ's sake, and was very cash poor. So, Coppola decided to go for it. He was officially announced as director and co-writer with Puzo of the film on September 28, 1970. Coppola wanted to ensure that the themes of culture, character, power, and family that he found prevalent in the source material were at the forefront of his film, so it wouldn't be just another run-of-the-mill mob film. He also wanted The Godfather to be a metaphor for capitalism, a story of succession, as Coppola put it, a king and his three sons. Coppola's initial script, which was 150 pages, was finished on August 10th, 1970, like six weeks before he was officially announced as director. Going forward, both Puzo and Coppola would work on the script separately, Puzo in Los Angeles, Coppola in San Francisco, but always in constant contact with each other. The final screenplay was finished on March 29th, 1971, and wound up being about 163 pages long, 40 pages over what Paramount had asked for. But then, of course, when filming, Coppola referred to a notebook he had created by ripping out pages of Puzo's book and breaking them down extensively as to preserve the tone of the book in his movie, and he relied on that more so than the final draft of his screenplay. Despite turning in the quote-unquote final draft, by the way, some scenes in the film were still not written yet and were written during production. 
Now, as far as the setting of this film was concerned, Paramount executives had wanted the movie to be set in contemporary St. Louis and shot on the studio backlot to save money. Coppola objected to this as he wanted to keep the film to its source materials era of the 1940s and 1950s in New York. Backed by Ruddy, Coppola won this argument as the novel was becoming increasingly popular and audiences probably weren't going to be happy if they went to a movie that they thought was going to be set in New York City and Sicily in the 1940s and 50s and instead got like 1970s St. Louis. Like, that ain't the same. And then we got casting. While Coppola would become his champion when it came to dealing with the studio execs, it was Puzo that had originally voiced his desire to have Marlon Brando play the titular godfather. He believed he was the only actor in town who could. Coppola agreed. On the other side of that, the studio wanted Ernest Borgnine, but Coppola continued pushing for Brando, which led to months of debate over the two. Paramount declared that the notoriously difficult-to-deal-with Brando would never be in a Paramount film. As the arguments intensified, in one meeting, Coppola threw himself on the floor over it, asking what the studio expected him to do if they were going to fight him every step of the way over every single decision he tried to make. Borgnine even screen tested as Paramount president Stanley Jaff had required them to shoot a screen test along with several other actors, none of them Brando. Secretly, Coppola set up a screen test at Brando's house. For makeup, Brando stuck cotton balls in his cheeks, wore shoe polish in his hair to darken it, and rolled his collar. When they were done, Coppola snuck Brando's audition tape into the middle of the other videos for the Paramount execs to watch. The executives were impressed with Brando's efforts and finally allowed Coppola to cast Brando for the role if Brando accepted a lower salary and put up a bond to ensure he would not cause any delays in production. He wasn't the only character cast that there was pushback for. In fact, Gulf and Western owner Charles Bluedorn was super frustrated with Coppola over the number of screen tests he was performing without finding actors to play several other roles. But the cast was slowly beginning to fall into place. This included Diane Lane as Kay, whom Coppola had liked because she was a little eccentric. And, you know, it was cast. They were slowly locking him in. It was okay. But one very crucial character that had not been officially cast was that of prodigal son Michael Corleone. Once more, the studio had a long list of actors, most of them not Italian, but Coppola wanted Al Pacino, whom at 5'6", the studio deemed to be too short to be the leading man of this movie. In fact, this time they had the source material to back him up, as the character of Michael in The Godfather book looked more like Robert Redford, whom also was seen for the role. Michael was blonde and tall, so not very traditionally Italian-looking, as most people would be like, what does an Italian look like? Coppola wanted the dark-featured, classically more Italian-looking Pacino. Eventually, Coppola won this battle too, and Pacino was cast as Michael, with the original tentatively cast Michael actor, the tall blonde James Caan, becoming Sonny, the older brother. Pacino was signed by Paramount just three weeks before shooting was set to start on The Godfather. To fill out the massive, massive cast, Coppola hired several of his own family members in roles, including his sister Talia Shire, whom played Connie Corleone. Before the filming began, the cast attended a two-week rehearsal, which included a dinner where each actor and actress had to assume their character for the entire dinner. Filming was scheduled to begin on March 29, 1971. 
So let's talk about what went on just before the cameras started rolling. Because there was a minute there where it looked like The Godfather might not get made because of some very real mobsters. As the cast and crew traveled to the Big Apple to begin shooting, the film was protested by the newly founded Italian American Civil Rights League, more commonly referred to as the League, which was led by real life mobster Joseph Colombo, whom apparently doesn't know what irony is, as the goal of the group was to show that not all Italian Americans are involved in organized crime. The cause did technically have noble beginnings, as this stereotype existed long before The Godfather ever released, but the legitimacy quickly devolved as the group claimed that the mafia didn't exist at all. All the mafia stuff, that was over in Italy. It wasn't in New York at all, which was inherently and very provably untrue. It turns out that the mafia had taken control of the league. In fact, one of, the, one of these non-existent crime families was led by Joseph Colombo himself. But Colombo, in another life, really should have done like PR or marketing because he figured out very, very easily how to capitalize on the public outrage of the making of The Godfather and began a campaign of violence and intimidation as he and the League vowed that The Godfather would never be completed. Threats began pouring into Paramount from The League and also those mob families that they said didn't exist. Al Ruddy found out from the LAPD that he was likely being tailed by the mob. One night, he traded cars with his assistant, Betty, and as she slept, someone blew out all the windows to the car. So they were clearly following the car. Bob Evans and his wife were similarly threatened as well. He got a call from the league mob, what have you, telling him that if the film were to be made, there would be further problems. Turned out, winning the argument on where the film would be shot turned out to be a double-edged sword. Yes, the film would look more authentic, but it would also mean taking the film into the belly of the mafia beast. Production offices were set up at Gulf and Western's New York building, where two separate bomb threats were called in. The powers that be knew they were likely bullshit, but since the fear of bombings was a very real thing at the time, there was a lot of social unrest, they had to carry out building-wide evacuations just to make everybody feel as safe as you possibly could given the circumstances. Undeterred, the Godfather crew soldiered on, directly into Little Italy, to try and find locations. And every time the production secured a location there, the next day the owner had magically changed their mind. Residences were terrified of mob repercussions. For the production, this meant a hemorrhage of money that they barely had to begin with. Little Italy was clearly a non-starter for the time being. Another problem? The mobs had also infiltrated the unions, meaning that if Colombo and the League decided to weaponize the unions, Coppola and company would never be able to shoot a single frame of The Godfather because there would be no crew, there'd be no food, there'd be no transportation, there'd be no nothing. It became inherently clear what needed to happen. Al Ruddy was gonna have to sit down with Colombo. Ruddy agreed to meet with Colombo at the Park Sheraton Hotel for what he thought was going to be a small, intimate meeting. Ruddy rolled into a meeting in a ballroom that contained 600 very pissed off Italians. At the meeting, Ruddy promised that the film would not negatively stereotype the Italian people. There were going to be all kinds of corrupt people, but good ones too. And it wasn't just going to be Italians. Other people were going to be shitty too. 
To confirm this, Columbo demanded that he would get to read the script, which Ruddy agreed to. But then Columbo saw the thick, thick boy that that big ass screenplay was and didn't want to sit there and read it. So he slammed it down on Ruddy's desk. In that moment, Ruddy made an offer that would change the course of the production. And it was a very simple one. He agreed to remove any words in the script that Columbo wasn't comfortable with. That's all it took. Columbo agreed then and there to this deal. Turns out he wanted just two things not to be used. The word mafia and Cosa Nostra, which is just another name for the Sicilian mob. If Columbo had bothered to read the script, he would have known that the word mafia only appeared one time in Coppola's original script and Cosa Nostra, not at all. So an insanely easy fix. All the other derogatory terms for Italians, most of which this Italian learned from watching this film, Columbo was totally cool with staying in. Magically, Little Italy opened up to the production, but the mob would get the majority of the money production would pay to use the locations. News of this deal became a media frenzy because Columbo summoned the press the day after his meeting with Ruddy and announced it. Columbo had also tricked Ruddy into being there. The backlash was swift. Hollywood was in bed with the mob? Scandalous. Gulf and Western stock tanked overnight as a result. Charlie Bluedorn lost his shit. He had a notorious temper, and losing billions of dollars overnight unsurprisingly set him the F off. Bluedorn summoned Ruddy to his office and just unloaded it on him. And he also demanded he be fired and all his work disavowed. Ruddy, while saving the picture, was temporarily fired from the film to be labeled the fall guy for this. By the way, the film hadn't even started shooting at this point, and losing Ruddy would send the film into chaos once more. The mob trusted him, and they needed the mob's cooperation to shoot in New York City. Coppola knew this and appealed to Bluedorn and managed to get Ruddy rehired, but Bluedorn was not happy about this. When shooting finally commenced, reporters and onlookers and mob members who'd be quick to give production tips on like how to do a mob hit would be a part of shooting the film for the duration of the production. Even mob boss Carlo Gambino watched some scenes being shot from a coffee shop. Several League members would get to be in the picture, too, particularly at the wedding at the beginning of the film. Lenny Montana, a hitman and bodyguard for one of the big mob families who was looking to get into acting, was cast as Luca Brasi. The cast, including Marlon Brando, would adopt quirks from their mob shadows to make their characters more robust. In fact, the production got so close to the mafia that they ended up under FBI surveillance. But all of this press and attention was fantastic for the film. It was just rampant, free-ass marketing. On June 28, 1971, the league threw its second annual rally. Al Ruddy was set to be the guest of honor, but the night before he received a call to stay away. Only four blocks away from where the rally was taking place, the Godfather was shooting one of its final New York scenes, which happened to be a mob hit. Ironically, at the rally, an assassination attempt was made on Columbo. He was shot three times. The other families had decided that he'd gotten too close to Hollywood, breaking their vow of silence. Without Columbo, within a year, the League was no more. Columbo fell into a coma and died seven years later. This event led to an all-out breakout of mafia warfare in New York. 
So that was Ruddy's kind of side of the drama. But what about Coppola's? Well, everything was chill for like three days after Ruddy had smoothed things over with the mob. But when the dailies, which is the footage of what was shot on a given day from the set, arrived in Los Angeles, the studio freaked out. They didn't like the way the film was being shot. They didn't like how dark everything was. They thought Brando was mumbling, leading to Coppola having to fight even more than he already had to ensure that the film was made to his specifications. Paramount thought his way was to indie filmmaker, which it turned out was what people kind of wanted because it was new and different. So, hey. Production quickly fell behind schedule, partly admittedly because of Coppola's indecisiveness, but also because of conflicts with Paramount, which led to costs on the film being around 40 grand per day, which is way more than they needed it to be. With cost rising, Paramount had then-Vice President Jack Ballard keep a close eye on the production expenses. While filming, Coppola stated that he felt he could be fired at any moment as he knew Paramount was not happy. Coppola was also aware that Evans had asked Elia Kazan to take over directing the film because he feared that Coppola was too inexperienced to cope with the increased size of the production. One potential replacement even shadowed Coppola on the set. George Lucas, whom visited his friend on the set, recalled how tense and angry Coppola was because of Paramount's constant meddling. Coppola was also convinced that the film's editor, Ara Mavakian, and the assistant director, Steve Kastner, were conspiring to get him fired as well. Avakian complained to Evans that he couldn't edit the scenes correctly because Coppola was not shooting enough footage. But Evans was one of the few satisfied with the footage being sent to the West Coast, and Avakian's plan backfired as Evans authorized Coppola to fire both Avakian and Steve Kastner. Coppola later explained, quote, Like the Godfather, I fired people as a preemptory strike. The people who were angling the most to have me fired, I had fired. Further, even though it took Coppola moving heaven and earth to get him cast, Brando threatened to quit if Coppola was fired. The scene that ultimately kept him from getting the axe, if you're super familiar with the film, is the way he shot Michael killing Salazzo and McCluskey in the restaurant. After that, Paramount backed off a bit. Oh, and fun fact, the horse's head, because everyone knows about the horse's head. I know you want to know. Yeah, that was a real freaking head. That was a real, honest-to-God, horse's head. They got it from a dog food company. So that's a thing. After filming ended on August 7th, post-production efforts were focused on trimming the film to a watchable length. Coppola shot a lot of shit. In September, the first rough cut of the film was viewed, and many of the scenes that ended up getting cut from the film were centered around Sonny as they didn't advance the plot. They had to focus more on Michael and Vito, so makes sense. By November, Coppola and Ruddy had finished the final, semi-final cut of the film. The world premiere for The Godfather took place at Lowe State Theater in New York City on Tuesday, March 14th, 1972, only three months late from Paramount's initial planned release date. That's not too bad given the chaos. Before the film had even premiered, it had already made $15 million from advance rentals from over 400 theaters. But the mob bosses weren't happy that they hadn't been invited to the premiere, so Ruddy planned a special screening for them. They were so happy with the film, someone tipped the projectionist $1,000. As The Godfather opened across the country, lines went around the block. At its height, the film was making a million dollars a day, which for then was a huge deal, especially after years of stagnant box office numbers. The Godfather shattered box office records and would, unsurprisingly, be the highest grossing film of 1972. Practically overnight, 
The film is considered one of, if not the, best gangster movie of all time. Movies about Italians became much more common, with an average of 10 per year being made between the release of The Godfather and the year 2014. Most Italian-Americans love the film, as even though it portrayed graphic violence and it was, you know, circled around a mob family, the moments in between of the family and the people and how the characters conversed and interacted with each other in the quieter scenes were so close to their own families and lives that they couldn't help but be drawn to the Corleone family. The FBI noticed the Godfather effect as well, as many of the mobsters that they were tracking began emulating some of the more poetic parts of the film Puzo had made up in his book. This included the kissing of rings and the flowery way in which the characters spoke. Some began mimicking Vito Corleone's speech pattern as well, which is a choice. They'd felt legitimized by the Godfather, which Coppola rebuffed as that was not his goal. Then, of course, came the rewards. Five Golden Globes, if those still matter, but, you know, they won them. Three Oscars, a Grammy. This film cleaned up pretty good. Also, if you remember, this is the film Brando won Best Actor for, but had Sasheen Littlefeather turn it down for him in that really awkward moment. It plays at the Oscars Museum, which I think is kind of funny. At the end of the day, Coppola brought depth and humanity to a genre that had been steeped in mindless violence and stereotypes pretty much since its inception. You know you did a good job when people feel sad that a mob boss died, or even a man you watch beat the living crap out of as someone else earlier in the film meet an untimely end. Coppola reached deep into this world and managed to pull out humanity from an unlikely source. The cultural ramifications of The Godfather could be felt for decades, and similarly set films and television shows. The Sopranos, for example, would never have existed had The Godfather never been finished. Neither would the concept of a mafia godfather, for that matter. Puzo had created that for his novel. And of course, in the last 50 years, The Godfather has been referenced and parodied more times than anyone can count. It is deeply entrenched in Americana. Of course, two films would follow. The Incredible, The Godfather Part Two, which was one of, if not the first film to number its sequel. Also, there's that third one in the 90s that I have to acknowledge because this is a loosely academic informational podcast, but that's about as far as I'm going. At the end of the day, The Godfather did a lot of things. It revitalized an ailing box office. It changed the way films were cast and even the way they were shot and made. It turned out that taking a risk on this young director had been exactly what Paramount had needed after years of stagnation. This would open the door to a slew of new talent in Hollywood while launching Coppola's career and revitalizing Brando's. The Godfather made Francis Ford Coppola the hottest director in town, and it also fixed his financial woes for the time being. After taking another turn in the director's seat for the second Godfather film, Coppola wanted to go somewhere very different in the mid-1970s, to the jungles of Cambodia, to be specific, to shoot a film that takes place during the Vietnam War. And there, he and his crew, in his words, quote, little by little, went insane. But that is a story for next week. You spend time with your family? Sure I do. Good. Because a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. You look terrible. I want you to eat. I want you to rest well, and a month from now, this Hollywood big shot's gonna give you what you want. It's too late. They start shooting in a week. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Now, just go outside, enjoy yourself, and forget about all this nonsense. Listen, I want you to leave all to me. 
that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out, the link in the show notes. Next week, we're headed to the jungles of Cambodia to find out what happened during the shooting of Apocalypse Now. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.